Is a popular popular podcast. Do not be afraid. Welcome to Popular History, a library of Catholic knowledge and insights brought to you daily. Hello, everyone. Welcome again. I did reach out to Trevor again to have him back on, and I told him, please, please, please tell us everything you know about uh, Zoroastrian numerology because I'm sure that's where a lot of Jewish and Christian numerology came from. So, uh, welcome back, Trevor. Thank you for having me. I'm not sure if I would say necessarily that they came from Zoroastrianism, mm. but there's definitely some influences. Yeah, well, like, I mean, you know, things like the number seven being significant appear to be um, older than anything we've got any records on. So, fair. <laughs> so Yes, so, go I, ahead. I, I guess my question would be, what are the most significant numbers in Zoroastrianism? Like, for example, you know, in Judaism, I would say it probably is seven, um, just because that's there from the beginning, um, and it, it governs Shabbat. Um, in Christianity, I would say, you know, it's three for the Trinity. They love that symbolism. They still love a seven. Um, what are the big, or what is the big number in Zoroastrianism? So... I would say that the you know, the biggest number, uh, or most important at least, is mm-hmm. seven. <laughs> Infinity. Uh, it's a <laughs> yeah. Uh, no seven. Yeah, for whatever reason, is one of those numbers that everybody kind of counted up to and was like, "That one. That one's a a big deal." Love me Which a is seven weird because there's not there's not a lot of sevens in the natural world. You know, uh, yeah. four is kind of important to Zoroastrian numerology, but, you know, it's attached to, like, the flow of the seasons and, you know, how you would connect particular holidays and things like that. But seven has remained important even to, like, modern Islamicized Persian mm-hmm. numerology uh, as the principle of the haft, uh, this, you know, group of seven things mm. as an organizing principle for society mm. you know, and usually that gets connected to the planets um though it's okay. you know we can't really tell if people counted all the planets and were like that's a big deal that number seven or there just happened to be seven visible planets in the sky right yeah and i and, i mean the explanation that i've seen for the seven thing and obviously this is pretty dated because i think this is you know, when it clicked for me was when I was reading Isaac Asimov, which is obviously a fairly deep cut that's, you know, 100 years old, not necessarily the most scholarly of takes. But, you know, this was sort of in my early, like, why do they care about that? Like, you know, obviously, you know, you, you could take Genesis literally, and then that kind of, you know, helps explain it for, or even take it symbolically, and you could still have that value from that number. So if you take that as the inspiration then obviously you've got the Abrahamic religions covered. But like you mentioned, it's deeper than that. So, you know, the Asimov theory, if I recall it, is basically, you know, you've got these lunar calendars, the moon is about 28 days, and uh, that's the only way you're going to divide that comfortably in any way is units of seven and four. And they seem to have run with the seven. I think part of it might just be the appeal of a number that is just so not willing to reduce sort of the prime nature of it. Just it's stubborn. 
And that sticks out if you're doing any sort of uh, mathematics, at least as I understand it. Yeah, there's definitely something to that. For Zoroastrianism specifically, it became an organizational principle. Mm. I, I think partly for that exact reason, that it's a large single-digit prime number. So mm. you've got, and an odd number, so there's a specific middle point with the number four. You know, you have seven-day weeks and seven musical modes, seven nirongs, a sort of prayer at the Zoroastrian initiation ceremony, kind of their equivalent to a baptism, and seven aspects of Ahura Mazda, the god of creation, mm. uh, or six beings called Ameshas Spentas, plus Ahura Mazda himself, depending on the scripture and you're looking at. It's kind of hard to tell which interpretation you're supposed to go with there. Mm. And I'm very curious now. Seven aspects of Ahura Mazda. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Can you give me any any example aspects of Ahura Mazda? Any of those divine aspects? Just because I'm sure there's parallels there. Sure. Let me make sure I have the list. Uh, because I only know a couple of them off the top of my head. Yeah. Right. So... I'll just give them in translation because that's easier, and all of their names are literally the word for the concept in uh, ancient Avestan. Mm. You have, and this is the one that will be the most similar, I think. You have the creative or good spirit, mm. proper purpose, truth or righteousness, depending on how you want to translate it, mm -hmm. good dominion, devotion completeness and immortality mm. okay and these are and these are all distinct conscious beings but also presented at least some of them as direct emanations from ahura mazda okay there's a great word that we'll be seeing more of i'm sure the uh, the emanations and if you don't talk about them more i certainly will <laughs> Maybe not tonight. Tonight we've got some uh, numerology to get through a little bit further. Um, so Ahura Mazda, um, he's the good guy, right? Yes. <laughs> and who is the bad guy? Ariman, yes. And if we're doing numerology, two is probably the second really important number to Zoroastrianism because of their very dualist cosmology. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah, they're structuring of the universe in terms of divine beings and mysticism and everything like that you have ahura mazda the creator of everything and angramainu or ariman is the oppositional force mm. and interestingly he doesn't specifically appear in the very oldest parts of zoroastrianism there's similar dark spirits but the name Ariman doesn't actually show up in the oldest hymns and prayers. Okay. And I, I'm sorry, whenever I hear Ariman, I, I keep thinking Saruman. You know, I Tolkien was a bit of a language nerd, and Avestan is one of the foundational languages to modern linguistics, so I'm willing to bet there's something there. I would, With Tolkien, there's always something there. Um, you could make up connections, and it turns out you're right. Um I also just want to give a shout out to an opportunity I missed to ask about uh, Zarathustra the Grey in our previous conversation. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So the, the, he founded Zoroastrianism after he uh, smote the uh, the bad guys ruin upon the mountain. Well, you know, it's it's really not that different. He does descend into a lake as an unenlightened being and come back out filled with righteousness and knowledge. So, oh, so we're just going full it's not hero's that journey much of a here. Stretch. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, there we go. There we go. We got uh, Zarathustra back on scene. Um, but, uh, let's, let's go ahead and talk some more significant numbers just to try and keep a little bit of focus. And that's, uh, that's entirely my bad, but yeah, what's up next? Uh, so next I would give number three, which is the last of the really, really important ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of an importance of three merged with a pseudo base 12 mathematical system. Okay. The... Early Zoroastrians are kind of the middle Zoroastrians around the time that the first people you might call Persians or Medes were getting into Iran encountered the ancient, like, Babylonian mathematical system, which was strictly mm-hmm. base 12. Oh, okay. But they already had a base 10 system themselves. So there's aspects of both in mm. a lot of Zoroastrian and early Iranian use of mathematics and numbers so just thinking about this this conflict between the uh baseline numbers because i know one of my favorite numerological bits that you keep seeing pop up both you know as as i've talked through and you know explored some of the older aspects of judaism i certainly don't claim to be an expert on modern judaism or ancient judaism for that matter but you keep seeing the numbers 70 and 72 popping up um, almost as like you know, like a tag team sort of thing, which to me, it, 70 definitely sounds like something you would arrive at as special in base 10 if you already like the number 7. And 72 seems like something you would get from a base 12 perspective. So that just that just struck me. And I always love the 70 versus 72 because so often it's, well, this is either 70 or 72 in this text, depending on your manuscript. And I'm like, that doesn't seem like an accident. That just seems like different accents almost. Yeah, it's very much something like that. You know, uh, like I said, you have a culture starting with a base 10 mathematical system, encountering a culture with a base 12 system, and kind of mixing the two into their numerological principles. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Sorry for derailing you there. <laughs> oh, no, that that's good. Like, because... There are 72 chapters of the Zoroastrian liturgy, mm. which may not have always been the case, or it may have changed over time because a lot of the Avesta has been lost over the centuries. But, you know, interesting to point out that you do have that 72 part structure. Right. They're, you know, they're like, oh, you know, was it 70 or 72 scholars that translated the Septuagint? Was it uh, 70 or 72 you know, extra level apostles that were sent out, you know, after the uh, the 12. So it's just, yeah, that, that keeps popping up. And I, I will admit when I saw 72 um, in one of the notes you sent me, I was like, oh, I'm going to bring that up. And so I just, yeah, c- can't wait. So there we go. Yes. So we've got the liturgies. We've got these prime numbers that we love. What else are we, what else is going on? I mean, do they have more than the liturgies or... Oh, yeah. The importance of a base three and, 
you know, the kind of implementation of the base 12 system is really apparent through the calendar and mm. you know, beliefs about the cyclical nature of time mm-hmm. because they use the 12 month calendar that basically everybody adopted over the centuries okay. with 30 days to a month. You know, starting with a 360-day calendar, as far as we can tell, and okay. probably adding the extra five days as an intercalary period after encountering the Egyptians. Yeah, and I th- you've talked about that in your podcast, right? I think I remember that coming I up. have a couple of times, because it plays into one of the major holidays uh, marking the end of the year. Yeah, I always picture those like interstitial days as being like the purge. I know it's not like that. Or maybe it is, and I missed something. But uh, that always just goes through my mind. I'm like, this is just a fundamentally different period. Like, it would have to be surreal knowing you're in that time. Although I guess maybe most people probably didn't uh, worry about it too much because they had other priorities. How much How much would calendar stuff impact, like, daily life? Well, uh, so that's kind of interesting here. Because, uh, especially in the case of the intercalary period... Uh, it functions as a sort of week-long equivalent to the Day of the Dead. You know, it is this period mm. where you're emerging from the darkness of winter uh, and spirits are closest to Earth and you can t- sort of interact with your ancestors more directly. And it leads directly into the New Year, which is the biggest and most important holiday on the Zoroastrian calendar. So people would be very aware of that uh, in a Zoroastrian society. Okay, yeah, and some of the descriptive hints you're giving me are telling me we're looking at, um, let's see, we're still Northern Hemisphere, so it'd be like February sort of time, or when in like our modern calendar would that line up with? The new year is the spring equinox. Okay, so yeah. March 21st, usually. Yeah. And people would pay attention to the calendar because in the Zoroastrian calendar, they don't number the days. Instead, each day is associated with a divinity, either Ahura Mazda or one of his Yazads, the kind of lesser gods or angels, depending on how you talk about them. Mm. So we're talking like 360 divinities then? No. So there's 33 celebrated with calendar days throughout the year, and they repeat with some getting doubles. Okay, and that 33, I'll put a pin in that. <laughs> yes, for some of the holidays, if the when the Divinity's Day is in the Divinity's Month, that's a major holiday. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of those have kind of fallen out of practice just because the community is so small. Right. But Maragon, the Day of Mithra, is still a popular holiday. Uh, in a lot of Iranian communities. Oh, yes. And I, I have to keep reminding myself that Mithra is in this in this pantheon. And of course, also that uh, Zoroastrianism is still with us. It's still a, a live and practiced um, religion, obviously having, you know, yes. some changes through the years, at least from the scholarly lens. I'm sure that there's, you know, different perspectives within the religion itself. And from a practical lens, they used to be the, you know, the primary religion of one of the largest empires in the world. Right. There's maybe a hundred thousand people. Mm. Mm-hmm. And a hundred thousand seems like a lot um, until you're used to being the uh, 
majority everywhere you go. Right. Yeah, and this is spread out, you know, with 60,000 of that 100,000 are in India, and the other 40,000 are literally everywhere else. <laughs> mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So very small communities outside of Mumbai, basically. Mm-hmm. And in Mumbai, I mean, 100,000 would seem to be a drop in the bucket. I think there's a several million folks there. Exactly. Excellent. Okay. Well, I I do love I do love me a calendar, and I was starting to think maybe it was like the uh, the plant of the day or the or the whatever agricultural concept of the day from the French Revolutionary calendar. It sounds like it's not quite as broad as that, um, but I I do love the repetition and the oh, it's you know jackpot with the divinity lining up with the uh, the month. Yes. Yeah, you know, and you've only got twelve months, so. You know, of the thirty-three, yeah. So some of them don't get months. celebrated. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Poor guys or gals or whatever they count as. Do Zoroastrian deities have like gender in any sense? Yes. Um. Yeah. You know, partly just because of ancient Avestan being a gendered language, mm-hmm. and partly some of them are very closely associated with specific gender roles. Gotcha. Anahita being the feminine one who is most gendered uh, as a patron of like giving giving birth and procreation and fertility and you know all of those good ancient fertility goddess categories yes a, a, f- a fairly standard of i don't want to call it a bag of tricks but a a portfolio yeah the the the, the female uh package is not i'm gonna edit this <laughs> <laughs> The usual. All right. So are there any other like topics in terms of, you know, their routines that tie in with numerology or what are they going about? Yes. So four comes up a lot in kind of weird and confusing ways (laughs) because it doesn't seem to be a major piece of symbolism most of the time. It's not like in Judaism where 40 is this really important number and... Mm -hmm it breaks down uh you know you have four seasons and the we've talked a lot about the calendar so that's very directly tied to the seasons and the dualist belief kind of plays into that where you know winter is the time of evil and spring is the time of good and things like that so Mm -hmm. that's a constant influence and that's still with us frankly oh yeah you know if we didn't if we didn't have christmas in december we would all hate winter. <laughs> There's no getting out of it. Um, you know, one interesting application of it is there are four estates in ancient Iranian society. Like Europe had the three estates, but okay. the Iranians gave artisans their own. And this probably plays into four being the exact center of the importance of number seven. Mm. Uh, because you can kind of view the divine world as having three categories. When we're talking with the estates, um, is that like a rigid thing? It sounds pretty rigid if it's influencing their numerology. Uh, yeah, I. it wasn't quite a caste system like we would see in 19th mm-hmm. century India or anything like that, but comparing it to the estates of medieval Europe is pretty accurate. Okay. And ritually, there is a lot of use of the number four around a person's death. One thing I think a lot of people have heard about Zoroastrianism is that 
strictly speaking, bodies are supposed to be left exposed to the elements and animals for a period of four days after death hmm. to you know, decay so that the decaying matter isn't exposed to directly to the earth. Yeah. And I, I think if folks, it, it seems to be like most folks, you know, if they know one thing about Zoroastrianism, it's either this or the fire thing. And if they knew two things, then they picked up the other one. Yeah. Dead matter of literally any kind, including like loose hairs and toenail clippings, is the mm. ultimate taboo in Zoroastrianism. Mm. So that exposure is very important. And it's a period of four days, at which point you are supposed to perform a ritual with a four-eyed dog. And <laughs> absolutely nobody has any idea what exactly that was supposed to mean when it was written down. I'm just canine glasses. That's that's what I'm going with. Yeah, the modern interpretation that seems to have originated at least in the Middle Ages is a dog with a specific patterning of spots that look like eyes on its head. I was going to say, is, is it spots? It's spots. But in the spiritual side of things, in the mythical side of things, the dead soul is then led across a bridge called the Chinvat Bridge that connects heaven and hell. Mm. And there they are greeted in at least one version by two four-eyed dogs, like actually four-eyed dogs that time. Oh, okay. One is a guardian animal, like a sheepdog or a, you know, a herd protector, and the other is a companion animal, uh, which are the two major categories of dogs, which are also very important. That number of four keeps showing up, and there's usually four gods that participate in the process of judging a soul and letting them into heaven or condemning them. So there's some connection there, but it's not extraordinarily well developed. Mm -hmm. Do dogs appear elsewhere? Um, or is this kind of their main, their main gig? Uh, this is like the main spiritual event mm -hmm. for dogs. Uh, but dogs are sort of the most sacred animal in Zoroastrianism. Uh, in this mm. text called the Vendidad, which is this law code that was kind of pieced together from bits of laws that people had memorized orally and didn't remember fully. So the grammar is really messy. It's basically a list of crimes and punishments, and crimes to a dog are treated as equal to crimes to a person. I think I remember that. Oh, goodness. The reason I said they're sort of the most sacred animal is because they had a really broad definition of dog. Uh, hedgehogs counted as dogs. <laughs> and otters, most of all, were the water dog. And fresh water, also extremely important. So an otter is described as the water dog who is composed of the souls of 10,000 dogs. Oh, wow. So don't mess with otters. Yeah, do, do not kill the water dog. The prescription against you, if you do that, is that uh, nature will destroy your country, basically. You know, you'll suffer <laughs> famines and droughts and disease, and uh, do not do not kill the water dog. <laughs> it, it's basically the pillar holding up your entire society, is the uh, the otter. The water dog, sorry. It's... Yeah, just don't mess with otters is basically the rule. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, biology and religion have interesting interactions, right? I, like, you know, I'm, I'm Catholic, so, you know, anything from a hippo to a beaver 
to, you know, a regular fish is a fish, um, liturgically. So. <laughs> exactly. Well, and sure, look at kosher rules. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Centuries of development, and you can still debate what exactly counts as a shellfish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. More rituals get involved with the number of five. There are five daily prayers, five prayers to the Yazad called Srausha, who governs consciousness and the senses, five senses which cause either good or bad actions, which we still have as a concept today, mm. five basic virtues, good thoughts, good words, good deeds, being the core Zoroastrian mantra, and then obedience and righteousness as the last two. Mm. Is righteousness um, anything like ma'at or... Not really, in like the Egyptian style. Yes, very much so. It's this concept called Asha, mm. which is usually translated as truth, especially in older translations, because that's how the Greeks translated it. Mm. But it really, like Maat is a lot closer to accurate. It is a divine principle of what is correct in the universe. Yeah. God is in his heaven and everything is in order. Exactly. There are five seasonal holidays, the one with the turning of each season, and then the intercalary period that we discussed, mm. mm -hmm. and five intercalary days to make up that holiday. And by what has to be complete and utter coincidence, there are five gathas, the hmm. hymns attributed directly to the prophet Zoroaster. Okay. It would be ludicrous to think they were the only things he ever composed because they're kind of like they're not a clear part of a single set. Mm. They are clearly about very different points in his career. So they're they're what we ended up with. There must have been more at some point. But by around 500 AD, that's all that was left was these mm. five. And, you know, they make up the climax of the liturgy. And that was 580, you said? Yeah, roughly. So that's when they would have been recorded, the Gathas. Yeah. Yeah, that's fairly that's fairly late for a... Well, I mean, relative to Zoroastrianism, right? That's 1,500 years ago, so it's not exactly that recent. But, <laughs> okay. Excellent. Um, and, uh, of course, the uh, the biggie number, uh, seven. What's, what's going on with seven? Yes. Uh, like I said, it was an an organizational principle connected to the planets uh, and to mm -hmm. Ahura Mazda and the six Amesha Spentas that are either aspects of him or, you know, like lieutenant deities, sort of. And it was used as an organizational system for society when you wanted to reflect the divine. Mm. And then kind of disseminated from there into like a popular motif um so you know at the esoteric political end of things in at least two separate instances in iranian history you had seven great noble houses the royal mm. family and then their six closest highest ranking nobles beneath them um mm. and as far as we can tell they're shouldn't be any connection between the first time that happened and the second time because they evolved out <laughs> of very different events uh so it kind of speaks to 
that idea of six plus one. Mm. When formal musicology first developed in late antiquity, the Persians had seven musical modes. Mm. And there's even a proverb that says the cat has seven lives instead of our nine, which I think is just unfair to Persian cats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which I shouldn't. I shouldn't judge the Persians for that's a British thing. They they did that to those cats. Cats in <laughs> Iran look normal. <laughs> Fair. Oh boy. So, one other thing I wanted to ask about um, was I, I saw a bit of that concept of the mythic ages. Um, you mentioned that. Could you expand on that a little bit? Oh sure. This connects a little bit back to the millenarianism we talked about mm-hmm. before. This is an idea that seems to have developed rather late, again, in that kind of 300 to 500 AD period, where time, it's not cyclical in the same sense as like in Hindu Kalpa, where you have a world and the world goes from beginning to end and is destroyed and reborn. It's that there's kind of mirrored images across time and creation so you have from the beginning of ahura mazda participation in the creation mm. of the universe there are six thousand years and at the end of six thousand years he defeats Ahriman. and mm-hmm. then there's a period of six thousand years and at the end of six thousand years Ahriman corrupts humanity and then there's a period of three thousand years and at the end Ahriman corrupts humanity and then there's another three thousand years and at the end humanity defeats Ahriman. It's a cycle. It is a cycle of the same kind of theological event playing mm-hmm. out in different contexts over time. Uh, and then you get into the period of recorded history and it, you know, they know what events are and they have mythical figures and historical figures to slot in and it gets more detailed so they start talking about it in terms of a thousand years. But mm. When you look at it, it still follows a sort of 3,000-year chunking. So you have three thousand, you have 1,000 years of the cycle, and the cycle repeats, and 1,000 years of the cycle repeats, and 1,000 years. But then every three or so thousand, you have either extreme darkness, or in the last 3,000, it's the build-up to the end times. Yeah, so it's almost like a clock with, uh, do you know um, Particle Man by They Might Be Giants by any chance? Yeah, they. Uh, I, I'm picturing because they talk about like the cl- the watch with the millennium hand and an eon hand, and uh, that's what I'm picturing here. Like you know, it's still the the overlapping cycles, and just you know, some hands count slower. That's that is actually very accurate to how I would think about that. <laughs> <laughs> and the the total cycle, it's interesting that you know the three thousand plus the three thousand is giving you 6,000, which I believe in um, most of modern Judaism, from what I understand it, is kind of seen as the creation of the world to the end of the world is supposed to be 6,000 years. So it's interesting that they have that, um, I don't want to say in common, but I'm going to say it anyways. So (laughs) it's interesting that they have that in common. Yes, because even though like their cosmological age of, creation is much older than that Mm -hmm. their concept the conception of the earth is roughly the same yeah 
so the earth is created in i the at the end of i think the second cycle and that because everything up to that has been like competition between evil and good gods and spirits without like a physical reality to play out in exactly so you, when you say the second cycle you mean like the second set of 6000 years Yes. Ah, okay. So would they say that we're in the second cycle at this point, or has there been more than two of these suckers? If I'm remembering it correctly, I think we would be in the fourth set of 6,000, and technically the eighth millennium. Hmm. Though, also in the text that lays this out most explicitly, it's called the Bundahishan, Um the world is supposed to have ended by now. I was gonna say we're we're eighth millennium. I mean, what's it's a six thousand year cycle, so we, we're we're past our uh, our oil change light is blinking. Yes, uh, there's. I have a very crackpot theory that explains so much. And honestly, and I do want to hear your crackpot theory, but honestly, Judaism, I know, like basically, you know, going back to that, the they also believe we're overdue. Um, you know, generally, in that the Messiah is basically already supposed to have come. Um, but because, you know, we messed up, he's not here yet. So we're kind of eaten into our, our Messiah time. Um, but, uh, yeah. So what's your, what's your crackpot theory? Oh, uh, yes. The very crackpot theory, uh, that I looked, I was reading the Bundahishan to, uh, talk about different divinities at one point and reading through this section and it gets to this very specific part where it talks about, and the Turks will invade, and then this will happen, and that will happen, and then Rome will rule for one year, mm. and then this king will come from the east, from this specific city in modern Afghanistan, and that will usher in a new age of Zoroastrian revival. And I was like, well, okay, one year. <laughs> that's that's very specific. They have to have been thinking about something in particular. Yeah. So I looked through and found exactly one event where the Romans ruled over a significant Zoroastrian population in the area where this text was written in northern Iran for w about one year, or, you know, the Byzantine Romans. Okay, I was, I was going to say, my, my guess was Pompey, but it was later than that then. Yeah, no, it's so it's the Byzantine Romans, and it lines up pretty precisely with right before Genghis Khan invaded Ah, yes. Western Asia. So <laughs> I was like, did did they think that Genghis Khan was the harbinger of, like, the good harbinger of the apocalypse? I mean, if he got rid of the Romans. <laughs> I have no evidence for this other than that one passage. But also, that's the exact same logic people use to date Daniel. So I'm not ruling myself out yet. <laughs> ah, the dating of Daniel. There is a a series and a podcast in itself. All right. Well, unless you have anything more on uh, on this one, and I know I kind of dragged out uh, plenty there, um, and I would, I guess, I wouldn't say dragging. I uh, I helped lead you merrily along many a uh, many a path. I think that covers all of my points. All righty. Awesome. Well. Thank you very much, Trevor. It has been a pleasure. I look forward to uh, wandering through the uh, vast library of uh, your knowledge and uh, the things that we can glean from what we see. Um, all the little details and all the little, you know, half-hinted 
connections, because a lot of this does get a little bit murky, but some of it is really on the nose. You know, when you see the 70, the 72, maybe not so much the four-eyed dogs, but uh, a lot of the parallels are hard to deny. And there definitely seems to be a lot of influence um, just all over the place, just humans talking to other humans. So it has been fascinating talking through Zoroastrian and uh, just general, is it fair to say Persian? Um, cultural awareness of these different significant numbers. Yes, I'm always happy to talk about Persia and its surroundings. <laughs> awesome. Thank you very much, Trevor. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening. God bless you all.